starting live video. Merci. Live video. Alhamdulillah. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. Brothers and sisters in Islam, ladies and gentlemen, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. And to all those who are watching on live stream on Facebook, السلام عليكم to all you brothers and sisters. May Allah سبحانه وتعالى enlighten us in the the next part of this series. From the life of the Prophet ﷺ, the best creation ever to walk this earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said about this creation, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajim. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Laqad jaakum rasoolun min anfusikum azizun alayhi ma'anittum harisun alaykum. حريص عليكم بالمؤمنين رؤوف رحيم. Allah said, there has come to you a messenger from among you. What happens to you is a great deal to him. It hurts him. Whatever happens to you in badness or in sadness or in misery or in hurt or in harm. He is ever so careful upon you, so you don't fall into harm in this world and the next. And he is, Ra'uf, always being there, cautious, protecting over you, O believers, and he is merciful. This is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Today, insha'Allah ta'ala, we will talk about his childhood. And we'll see where we reach, insha'Allah ta'ala. My aim today is to reach up to the moment of his marriage to his first wife, the Sahabiyyah Khadija bint Khuwaylid radiyallahu anha. One of the four perfect women of the world and one of those promised paradise. So, we left off last week talking about how the Prophet ﷺ was born. His mother is Amina bint Wahab. His father, Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib, he died before the Prophet ﷺ was born. And so, the Messenger of Allah ﷺ was orphaned before he was born. Amina gave birth to him on the floor, outside of her home. And we spoke how Baraka Ummu Ayman, who was gifted by Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of Prophet to his son Abdullah when he got married to Amina. She was gifted to them as their maid or their slave, actually. We spoke about Barakah, who she is in our last class. I'm not going to repeat it. But she was the one who helped deliver the Prophet ﷺ. And she's the first person. I don't just say first woman, but the first person to touch the Prophet ﷺ. We're going to return back to the story of Barakah today a little bit later on. 
And we mentioned that uh, some of the things the books of Sira bring to us, there's hundreds of books of Sira, brothers and sisters, and to be honest with you, it sometimes is very difficult to sift through what's authentic and what's not. So I've tried my best to do lots of research over the years of my life and to always repeat and go over and over again. Sometimes I discover that we've said things in the past that actually are either fabricated or weak and even the great scholars have mentioned them not assuming that they will affect people in any way. They're just stories that make the story more beautiful and this is a custom Unfortunately, I don't agree with it. Among the scholars of the past and the storytellers, when we love the Prophet ﷺ, obviously we love him more than ourselves, we tend to you know, not stick to the facts and we like to make it more colorful and more interesting and more entertaining. And so we hear of stories that come forth and we say, well, that sounds nice, I'd like to narrate it, I'd like to put it. Even the historians of the past, they put it in there. But there are actually a lot of them not true. So I'd like to state what is authentic about the Prophet ﷺ and not make him more than what he is وسلم, as he used to say in the Sahih Hadith لا كما النصارى عيسى بن مريم فجعلوه إلهم. Do not overpraise me as the Christians praised Isa until they turned him into a god. So we know who the Prophet ﷺ also in this day and age I prefer to say what is authentic and factual about the Prophet ﷺ that fits better because then what happens when you find out that some things really are either do not make any sense whatsoever neither by the chain of narrations nor by the chronological story of events that don't make sense sometimes and then it makes us you know look foolish you know and it discredits a lot of the stuff we say about the Prophet ﷺ. Today you're going to hear a few things that may surprise you, even may shock you sometimes. But insha'Allah, I bring to you what I can of the sifted, most authentic that I can insha'Allah ta'ala, not just from me, but from the scholars of hadith and ulama, not from my own words. We're going to use people like Ibn Kathir and uh, people like Ibn Ishaq, who is the original historian, he is the source of all history of the seerah. And uh, people like Al-Bayhaqi, rahmatullah these are great scholars. Insha'Allah Ta'ala, we bring to you the story of the Prophet وسلم, as it is the miracle of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Brothers and sisters in Islam, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was born 50 days approximately after the year of the, after the uh, incident of the elephant, in the year of the elephant. It was said that he was born approximately 570 CE, CE, Christ era or AD. And that's the uh, Western calendar we use today. And died, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, after how many years? 60. 60. Now, so 62 years, or 63 approximately, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he died in the year 632. When he was born... Again, we said that it's fabricated or weak hadiths that the Prophet ﷺ, they said he was born with his umbilical cord already cut. <laughs> that has no basis. Doesn't even make any sense whatsoever. Rasulullah ﷺ had an umbilical cord and it was cut later on either by Barakah or by his grandfather Abdul Muttalib. But more probably by Barakah anha and Mu'ayman later on. They said that he was born circumcised. That has no basis to it either. 
people want to make it more than what it is. And he says that he was born with his eyes looking up into the sky and his hands down and that he was born in sujood and all these stories really do not have an authentic source to them. Rasulullah has much more than that that we can go by than these fabricated fantasies. My brothers and sisters in Islam, after he was born, Abdul Muttalib, his grandfather was still alive. Subhanallah, we have now two calamities that are facing the Prophet ﷺ before he is even born, before he's even looked into this life. And they are that his father has died before he was orphaned. And then we find out later on at the age of six years old, his mother dies. He's orphaned from two sides. Abdul Muttalib has now, is now sponsoring him. He takes him over and he is absolutely over the moon about the birth of this grandson. He takes him immediately to the Kaaba. He enters inside the Kaaba and he calls upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless him and thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for what he has given him of a son. And that's when Abdul Muttalib, his grandfather, names him. It was Abdul Muttalib who named the Prophet ﷺ Muhammad. The story of his naming in the books of Sirah, it says that Abdul Muttalib said that he, he used to go on trade with three of his good friends. There's no need to mention their names, but these three other good friends, they also named their children Muhammad. And Abdul Muttalib named Muhammad sallallahu Muhammad. So there were about four people. It was very rare. Nobody, actually nobody had ever named the name Muhammad in the Arab world. Not in Yemen or in Mecca or in Yathrib, Medina, anywhere in the world. Not in Iraq. Nowhere was the name Muhammad ever known to the Arabs. It was when he was going on a trade. And on their way they met a Jewish scribe, a scholar. Uh, this, this scholar. And... They, he was telling them about the coming of a prophet in the land of Yathrib in Medina and that their books say that his name is Muhammad, the all-praised one. These four men, they loved the name. And Abdul Muttalib was the first to have a grandson. He was the first to name him Muhammad. And then the others, they also named their children Muhammad. So that's the naming of the Prophet wasallam. After he was born... In the books of Sirah, we don't have too much information about the Prophet ﷺ, except what I'm going to narrate to you today. It was the custom of the Arabs in those days that when a child was born in Mecca, they sent him to people in Yathrib. Why am I saying Yathrib? Because it wasn't named Medina yet. It was also called Tiba. But I'm taking you through the journey as if we're living there at the moment. So let, now it's called Yathrib. Everybody knows it as Yathrib. Yathrib people, it, was, it had vegetation, it had date palm trees, it had more water, it was uh, more civilized. The, 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 you know, the, the Arabs there were well established. People didn't come and go into Medina and Yathrib like they did in Mecca. It's like when we're living here in the West. It's very multicultural. People come in and out. And unfortunately, a lot of us have forgotten our Arabic language. You know, our children, Allahu Alam, how much Arabic they will hold. And then our grandchildren, Allahu Alam. You know, because of the influx, which is a multiculturalism is a good thing, but unfortunately sometimes what happens is that you lose the original grammar of your Arabic and it becomes slang and you lose a lot of its 
words and meanings. You don't know how to talk anymore. It gets mixed. I mean, uh, what do we say now, Lebanese people? When my parents used to come here, we used to, someone asked you, um, you know, do you agree to go to such a place? And we used to say, Tayyib. It's all good. Now we say, all right. <laughs> all right means all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we even type it. Alef, wa kaf, yeah. So we, we start to mix. What the Arabs of Mecca wanted to do was that they wanted to send their children to Yathrib because there was the heart of Arabic. The greatest poets came out of there. And by the way, having to mention this Arabic, the Arabs took absolute pride and honor in their Arabic language. I mean, poetry was the biggest thing. In fact, poetry was the biggest media in those days. If somebody wants to get revenge from you, you'll be finished, wiped out with poetry. And if somebody wants to praise you, you will be almost a king by the poetry that they say to you. In fact, the leaders of Quraysh and others, they used to pay for people, great poets, to mention them in a good way, even with lying. And because what's poetry? Poetry is an exaggeration of either left right or extreme right or extreme left or something in between, however way they want it. Everybody used to fear the great poets. And that is why later on you'll find out that the Prophet rejoiced Rejoiced immensely when the great poet Hassan ibn Thabit embraced Islam. Later, later on, we'll talk about him when he was in Medina. He embraced Islam and he had great poetry because that was the media of the time. The media of the times. Nothing wrong today. This teaches us nothing wrong today. If you had poetry or you had skills in, 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 in spoken word, for example, or in singing. Don't misunderstand me when I say singing. You're allowed to sing for crying out loud. It's okay to sing. Sometimes even in circumstances, you're allowed to use the daf or the tambourine. There's nothing wrong with that, inshallah ta'ala. And it's, it's a form of media. It's a form that enters the heart and the minds. Even teaching your children through rhythmic words and singing in ways that is mubah, is allowed to teach your children is really good. In fact, I've had a little story about a man when... I'm going on a tangent now, but there's a man who, speaking about poetry and, and how to teach people with uh, rhythmic poetry and spoken word and singing, there was a man of the Bedouin Arabs who entered the masjid of the Prophet once, and the Prophet, peace be upon him, was teaching about the salat, the five daily prayers and how many rak'ahs each one is. And this Bedouin man couldn't memorize it. He told him it's this and that and that, and the man couldn't memorize it. The Prophet repeated it again and again, until finally one sahabi entered and says, Ya Rasulullah, let me teach him. <laughs> So he said, tell me, how, how do you want to... And he turned the Salat prayers and their numbers into a poem form. And the man immediately memorized it into a poem form. There's nothing wrong, my brothers and sisters, to go into those areas. Islam is not rigid and strict to that extent. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, it was a custom to send their children from Mecca to Medina to be raised to learn the pure, proper Arabic language and to be raised among their own society and their, in their pure form away from all the other stuff and, and, uh, and without any distractions. Because the parents in Mecca, they were distracted. There's lots of work to do. There's people coming in and out. Each tribe, remember what we mentioned, each tribe had a duty in Mecca. One of them used to give water for, to the Hujjaj. The other one was responsible for uh, Dar al-Arqam and uh, Nadwa. Others were responsible for the key of the, of the Kaaba. And then others who used to serve them with the material, the kafa, the, uh, uh, the ihram which they used to wear. They used to wear ihram as well. By the way, speaking about the ihram, uh, the leaders got so obsessed with their honor and privilege of their custom of looking after certain things, of responsibilities for the hujjaj. Remember what we said that the Arabs, they will die. They will rather die and fight to death to uphold one single honor 
for their family. They will wipe off nations and villages, tribes. They'll even their lives in bloodshed. They'll be tortured night and day for one honor. They call it sharaf, a dignity. <laughs> this is the jahiliya. So, the, the Arabs, what did they do? What was I saying? Before that. I was making a point. Yeah, the ihram. So the people who were, the leaders who were responsible for the ihram, they got so obsessed that they said to the people who came from outside, you have to buy and purchase our ihram. You're not allowed to bring your own ihram. You're not allowed to use any other ihram. And so the poor people who couldn't afford the ihram, what did they do? They circumambulating tawaf naked. People became naked. And nudity almost became something normal because of the tawaf. But women did dress and men did dress. But when it came to rituals, nakedness was not really a priority. So they made tawaf, some of them naked, <laughs> around the Kaaba. Men and women, subhanAllah. Until the Prophet ﷺ became Prophet, he entered, took over Mecca, and he stopped that terrible ritual. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, Rasulullah ﷺ was now a baby ready to be received by someone from Yathrib, who they used to come to Mecca. And what did they used to do? They used to take the children, especially women who already had children. Why? Because they needed to breastfeed. And we all know, for those of you who are married or sisters here who've had children before, you understand that a woman cannot breastfeed, she cannot lactate, she can't make milk in her breasts unless she has a newborn child. And subhanAllah, it's amazing from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that when a baby, I'll just tell you this, when a baby cries and the mother hears the crying of the baby, stress hormones are released and those stress hormones produce more milk for the baby, subhanAllah. So the, these women, they took other babies, and when those other babies cried, it produced even more milk. So it was capable of, of feeding one, two, three, four babies at the same time. And these people used to come and get paid for their work. How did they get paid? The Arabs never put a standard price to their service. It was against their honor and dignity to say this is worth something. So what did they do? They left it up to the individual. They were called honorariums. Whatever you think your dignity tells you to pay me, I will take it. And whatever you give me, my dignity tells me, don't question it. That's how the Arabs were. Along they came and one of the ladies, she was, she, she, she was poor and her husband was poor. This particular lady's name was Halima Tussadiyah. She embraced Islam later on. Halima came from Medina Yathrib, she lived in Yathrib. She came along with her husband. As the women and men were going to, to Mecca, it took them, you know, a month or two months journey almost for some of them. She took what she had, it was called a female mule. A female mule. That's all she had. And it was very skinny because they were poor, they couldn't feed it too much. It was weak. And she would always delay the delay the people who were going there, the, the, the people who were traveling there. And he used to say, Ya Halima, hurry up, kick your lazy donkey. She would say, he's not lazy, he's weak. Once she arrived, subhanAllah, everybody took a baby. And who did everyone avoid? The Prophet 
Why? Because he was an orphan. He didn't have a father. And if you don't have a father, it means there's no, no money. So everybody avoided him. How are they going to take him? And you know, as we said, there was no standard fee. They're not going to come sit there and tell him, pay me this much. He had no father. They don't want to debate. Also, his uncles were not very rich. Abdul Muttalib, his grandfather, was also poor. Abu Talib was poor. And you'll realize later on that subhanAllah, sometimes they would barely have enough food for their children. And sometimes they would go a day without food. They lived it hard in Mecca. It was, it, it's a barren land. It's very hard to get water even, brothers and sisters. They survived off dates and sometimes dirty, murky water. Aisha radiallahu anha used to say that back in the days with the Prophet ﷺ, before Islam flourished and zakat came in and sadaqah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed us, we used to live sometimes for two months without meat or any kind of vegetation except the two black things, the dates and polluted water. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, that was their state, subhanAllah. That's where the Prophet ﷺ was born. This is the environment. Halima Saadiya was the only one left. Everybody beat her and they took babies. And Halima was one of those humble people that was a bit of an introvert and she was shy. So she said to her husband, Wallahi, I cannot return back to Yathrib without a baby with me. This is a shame. I'm going to come all the way and I couldn't get a baby. This is not good. You know, what's my reputation? My, they'll start saying things about me that I'm not capable. Wallahi, I won't leave without a baby. And subhanAllah, it was the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted this honor to Halima Saadiya to give her the best creation of earth, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So she took him and she didn't negotiate, as we said, any price. And Amina, whatever she could afford, she paid it. Halima Saadiya took him sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and went back to Yathrib. My brothers and sisters in Islam, it was the custom and tradition in those days that you look after a child, foster care, they called it fostering, for about a year and a half to two years. Actually, subhanAllah, the Qur'an came and confirmed. It actually supported this two-year period of a mother breastfeeding her child. It is recommended that you breastfeed the child for two whole years, right? Before another child comes along. And Allah says in the Qur'an, حَوْلَيْنِ كَامِلَيْنِ Two whole years. If Whoever is able or wishing to fulfill the entire full period of breastfeeding. Allah mentions it in the Quran as a recommendation. So they used to take him for that long. In, the t- in that time of two years, remarkable things happened. Halima Saadiya found that firstly her female mule carried lots of fat. It became big and strong. She had another camel, a female camel, Ba'ir, that was also skinny. And subhanAllah, he started to carry lots of meat and carry lots of milk. Allahu Akbar. She had sheep, a few sheep. And they also started to carry lots of milk and lots of meat to the point where the people of Medina used to say, Yami, follow the sheep of, of Halima. Wherever they graze, you graze there. Maybe that's where all the nourishment is. And subhanAllah, they used to send their sheep to wherever Halima Saadiya's sheep were. And their sheep would return exactly the same. But Halima Saadiya's sheep would double, quadruple. And Halima and her husband knew that there was a blessing in this child, subhanAllah. All the blessing and the rizq started to come. Their crops started to grow. Their nourishment, subhanAllah. So wherever Rasulullah was, it was blessed. When she noticed this, the 
two-year period had passed, and she had to return the child back to Amina. So she started to think of as many excuses as she can, so that Amina can approve of sending him back to her, just to keep him another year or two for more blessings. When she came back to Medina, she begged her and said, look, Amina, this child, you know, look, mashallah, he's put on weight and, you know, alhamdulillah, he's blessed and, you know, give him another couple of years, you know, he deserves it, he's your only child, he's an orphan, you're going to put him back here into Mecca in this hardship, leave him with me, wallahi, I'll look after him the best, until she convinced her. They took him back and by the age of about four years old, something remarkable happened. This is authentic, agreed upon in Bukhari and Muslim and other books, unanimously agreed by all the scholars, past and present. That one day, by the way, Halima Saadiya had already some children. And these children, they became the siblings of the Prophet ﷺ. They became his brothers and sisters. How did they become his brothers and sisters? Who can tell me? from breastfeeding. We call them brothers and sisters by suckling. If the ulama agree that if, when you're a baby, if another woman who has a child, because obviously she can only breastfeed when she has a child of her own, a baby, if, you get, if this child gets breastfed by another woman, at least four stomachfuls, which is the majority of the opinion, then that baby becomes the brother or sister of all the children of that woman who breastfed the child. Right? Understood? Yeah. Or do I have to repeat it? Understood. Understood. If there are two women and each one breastfed the other person's, the other woman's child, then those children and their siblings become the siblings of each other. No one can marry from any of them, and both their mothers, they become their, the mothers of the other person, by breastfeeding. And I, I wish that maybe someone, especially young people, one day, if you go into university and you want to do a PhD, PhD is a doctorate, you do a research of something, especially in science, maybe, I would have loved to do that myself actually, to study breast milk, and to see what is there in that milk. We're talking about the, original, the first bits of breast milk that comes out, actually. It's, it's a bit yellowish. For those of you who had children before, you know what I'm talking about. That breast milk must have something that, Allahu alam, I believe it's just my theory, my guess. I've read a bit about it. It possibly alters something in the DNA, genetics, that would make someone to be called a sibling, not allowed to marry from them. Allahu alam. But this is in our sharia. So the Rasul ﷺ had siblings from breastfeeding. They, their names were Shayma. Shayma was his older sister by about two years by breastfeeding. Abdul Rahman, Anisa, and the other two that were by breastfeeding were Hamza radiallahu anhu and Abu Salama. But they were suckled by another woman named Thuwayba, who was the slave girl of Abu Lahab. I'm not going to go on so I don't confuse you. But the point is that he had one, two, three, four, five brothers and sisters just from being breastfed. Hamza radiallahu was his uncle and his brother by being breastfed, subhanAllah. The will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
My brothers and sisters in Islam, therefore, Halimatu Sa'diyah became his wet nurse. At the age of about four years old, Halima Sa'diyah noticed, she said, he grew four times faster than a normal child. Four times faster. At the age of three, he looked like he was six. At the age of four, he looked like he was eight. He was extremely sharp-sighted, full of wisdom. He used to focus. And he was extremely brave. He was very brave. The most you would see if he got scared was he'd go pale, but that's about it. And then his color would come back. Even at the age of four years old, he was brave, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was beautiful. He was calm. He was clear in his speech. He was able, at the age of two years old, his speech was like a six-year-old. At the age of four, his speech was like a ten-year-old. Very clear in his speech. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him this eloquence. And subhanAllah, when he became a prophet, the sahabas used to say, Ya Rasulullah, we find you the most eloquent among us, yet you are the least educated among us in language. He was ummi, couldn't read or write. By the way, the majority of the Quraysh of people of Makkah couldn't read or write, by the way. Yet he, they said, you were the most eloquent. And he said, Allah is the one that taught me. By the age of four years old, he was playing with his siblings when one of his brothers, Abdul Rahman, he ran back to his mother, Halima Sa'diyah, scared, and his other siblings saying, Mother, 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 two men came to Muhammad and they gave him a blow to his body. They hit him hard. They put him to the ground and they cut his chest open. They took out his heart. There was blood everywhere. Halima Sa'diyah ran her and her husband. And they saw the Prophet ﷺ sitting up with his face pale. And he had a scar, two scars that were already... There were scars, subhanAllah, not stitched up. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala left these scars. It's in Sahih Muslim that later on, later on when Rasul ﷺ was about close to his age of 60 years old, Ibn Abbas, who is his cousin, was very young. Uh, not Ibn Abbas, sorry. Anas ibn Malik, who was about 9 or 10 years old, who served the Prophet ﷺ. He said, I saw two scars on the chest of the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet, peace be upon him himself, after he became a Prophet, he talked about this story. He said, I was playing with the children when two men came to me. <clears throat> I did not know them, they were wearing white. And it was Jibreel alayhi salam, and some say it was Mikael with him, alayhi salam, the angels. They gave me a blow which made me unconscious. And they had a bowl made of gold with zamzam water in it. They took out my heart and I could barely hear what was going on. And they took out a black coagulated piece of blood, black. They took it out of my heart, put it in, they took it out and then they washed my heart in the zamzam water and they said to me, The shaitan will not be able to whisper to you after today. Allahu A'lam, what is the secret about this connection that we have with the shaitan? In the Sahih Hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, that at least when, when a person is born, when a human being is born, or every single one of us, every human, born of Muslim or non-Muslim parents, Iblis sends a shaitan to stay with you till your death. He is called Al-Qareen. He's also mentioned in the Quran. Qareen. Everyone has a Qareen. And the only, the sole purpose of this Qareen is to whisper bad 
thoughts into your head. That's it. The shaitan has no power over you. He cannot control you. He cannot control you. But he whispers and you do the action. That's why on the Day of Judgment, Allah says in the Quran, وَقَالَ قَرِينُهُ رَبَّنَا مَا أَطْغَيْتُهُ وَلَكِنْ كَانَ فِي ضَلَالٍ بَعِيدٍ On the Day of Judgment, the Qareen, that shaitan which is attached to you from birth, you will blame him and say, Ya Rabb, it's his fault, he's the one that whispered, blame. And the Qareen will say, Rabbana, oh, our Lord, our Lord, he acknowledges him as their Lord, because he's, he's shifty, right? The shaitan is very shifty, he acts like he's your friend. On the Day of Judgment, he says, hey, I believe in God, man. And he says, I did not lead him or her astray, but they were too far away that they listened to me. I only invited them. Another verse, He speaks to you and says, I only invited you and you responded to the invitation. Don't blame me. Blame yourselves. Nobody has an excuse. So they took that bit out and Rasulullah could never be whispered to by the shaitan. Why? Because Rasulullah was going to receive the Qur'an. In order to carry the Qur'an, he cannot forget it. He used to hear it once. And the shayateen would love to come and mix it up for him. There are Orientalists. Do you know what Orientalists are? They're people, historians who talk rubbish about things, about the Prophet وسلم, twist it around. And they use this as an excuse. They say, the shaitan is to come to Muhammad وسلم, and whisper things to him until he went mad and he mixed the verses of the Quran and so on and so forth. This is absolute false and rubbish. There is no source to it, no evidence, no proofs, just twisted words, manipulated. Rasulullah never forgot a verse of the Quran. Yes, they were abrogated verses. Allah says, some of them he made the Prophet وسلم, forget them for a reason. Allah says it in the Quran, but ما ننسخ من آية أو ننسها نأتي بخير منها أو مثلها. This is already dealt with. Allah says there isn't a verse in the Quran that we make you to cause you to forget. Allah makes him forget, not the shaytan. أو ننس أو ننسها أو نأتي بخير منها أو we bring a verse that is better than it. A verse that is better than it doesn't mean that a verse that is more eloquent than it. A verse that is more fitting to the changing. Context. The verses were sent down as the time changed, as context changed. So in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, things were happening, so he brought in some verses, some of them would make him forget, some of them he would replace them, right? Depending on the circumstances. And we'll talk about that later on, inshallah, giving examples. So Rasulullah ﷺ was like that. He took that thing out, and Rasulullah ﷺ could not be possessed by a shaitan, could not be whispered by a shaitan. By the way, I'd like to make a little point here. SubhanAllah, it doesn't matter. Where we get to, inshallah, we've got all year to get through the seerah, right? So one more thing I want to say is this. If you happen to get whispers from the shaitan that are bad, wallahi, even whispers that make you think whether God exists or not. This happens, this is a reality. Then don't worry. They are only whispers of the shaitan. And so long as you don't believe in them or act upon them, you are safe. How do I know? In the Sahih Hadith. The companions came to the Prophet ﷺ one day and said to him, Ya Rasulullah, wallahi, we get whispers sometimes in our heads that if we were to tell you about them, we'd rather be burnt. Burn us in the fire than telling you what goes through our head. And the Prophet ﷺ smiled saying, Alhamdulillahi, awatajiduna thalik. Do you really find that they said yes? He said, Alhamdulillahi alladhi radda kayda shaytani ila alwaswasa. Praise be to Allah who has reduced the power of the shaytan against you to mere whispers. 
So don't worry about those thoughts. Some people say to me, I get whispers, am I a kafir, am I a disbeliever? No. No. These are normal. The brain is normal. You always get this, comes and goes. The moment you start worrying about it is the moment that that thought sticks there. So here is the hadith, Rasulullah don't worry about it. As when Halima Sa'diya saw this about the Prophet ﷺ, her and her husband became scared. They didn't know about angels and things like that. They thought it was a jinn. Jinn. They believed in jinns. So they said, we better return him back to his mother before something else happens and we're blamed. If the kid dies in our hands, oh my God, you know, it's not our fault. So they went back to Amin. And now this time, before she was trying to persuade Amina to take him back, this time she was trying to persuade Amina to take him off her. So she came to Amina and said, Look, you know, subhanAllah, you know, alhamdulillah, we, we had a lot of time with Muhammad. And, you know, as time went by, we got very busy now and we felt that you haven't seen your son for a long time. And, you know, you can take him back. And Amina looked at her and said, Ya Halima, what's so different about it this time? And she tried to make up excuses. Then she said to her, Halima, I can tell from your eyes you're not telling me the truth. What really happened? And she said, Wallahi, this and that happened. She told her the story. And Amina said, and what? She didn't, she didn't budge. Amina did not budge. She said to her, and what? Do you think that a jinn came to him? They said, what else? We don't know what else to say. She said, la wallah. Jinns would not come to him. I saw in my dreams the time that he was in my belly. In my womb, someone came to me in my dream and taught me these words, I seek refuge in Allah to protect him from every jealous, envious person, from every shaitan. There is also a dua that you can say to your children when they go to sleep, Prophet ﷺ used to say to his two grandsons, Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein, when they used to go to sleep, he used to say, I seek refuge in Allah to protect you. In his holy words, to protect you. From all shaitan and from all harm. And from all beasts. And from anything that, harm means bacteria or viruses, things that travel around, harmful things. And from every evil eye, and from every person who is envious. My brothers and sisters in Islam, Amina then took the Prophet ﷺ back. And he grew with his mother from the age of four years old, just with his mother, while Abdul Muttalib was looking after him and spending on him. He spent time with Abdul Muttalib. He was the chief of his clan, of his tribe, Banu Hashim. Until the Prophet ﷺ was eight years, two months, and ten days. That's when Abdul Muttalib died. Subhanallah. At the age of six, Abdul Muttalib took him in by himself. Why? Because at the age of six years old, his mother, Amina, died. When Amina died, 
There's a story to it. With her was Barakah, Umm Ayman. Remember Barakah? Slave woman of the household of the Prophet ﷺ. They treated her like their own. She was approximately 14 years old or so, or maybe 16. Last time I said 14 or 16 when he was born. She was actually younger than that. She was about 16 or 17 at this time when Amina bint Wahab died. She was on her way back from a journey, not inside of Mecca, outside of Mecca in a place called Al-Abwa. Al-Abwa. A few kilometers outside of Mecca. We don't know exactly. People don't know, can't pinpoint the place where Amina, Amina's grave is. But the Prophet ﷺ knew where that grave was. So on her way back, she struck a fever. And she was stricken with a fever and a sickness. In those days, they didn't have medicine like today. And obviously, it's out in the desert. There's nothing there in Mecca. Allah. The only water they had was Zamzam, really. And if you didn't die of natural diseases, you died of, of the food that you were eating sometimes, or of the water that, that you had other than Zamzam. So Amna became sick there. And her and Barakah were the only ones there, according to what I read. The Prophet ﷺ was six years old. So he's well aware of what's happening. Even given the fact that he was double his age in maturity and in size and everything. She, 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 she went, she lied down and Baraka put some shelter over her. There's a little house there that put some shelter in there. She stayed for a few days actually, sick. When Amina felt that she was going to die, she, under, she could see, she could tell. She brought Baraka close to her and said to her in secret, she whispered to her. But the Prophet ﷺ was sitting aside. He can, he can actually hear the conversation from a distance. Amina didn't want her son to hear this. So she said to Baraka, Ya Baraka, I'm about to pass away. Anti ummuhu ba'da, ba'da ummi. Oh Baraka, you are now, I want you to be his mother after his mother. I trust no one else but you. Subhanallah. And Rasulullah ﷺ saw, saw Baraka crying at that point. As she was telling him her the story, a few moments had passed and Amina went into unconsciousness. Then she died. At the hands of Baraka, under the hands of, while Amina, Baraka was, was, was holding her head on her lap. Now Rasulullah could tell that Baraka was crying. He looked at his mother and she was breathless. No more breaths, no more. Her face, had, her, her color had changed. And the Prophet ﷺ would look at Barakah. The next minute he would look at his mother. And he would look at Barakah, look at his mother. And he understood that his mother had, had died. So what did he do? He leaped. He literally leaped. Like what a child does. Onto the chest of his mother, Amina. And he started to cry. Kissing her and you know, wiping his face and his body onto her, like what a child does. He said, yani, my mother, my mother Amina. Baraka took him away. He looked at her and he remembered what his mother said moments ago. He said to her, as if he's pleading to her, Anti ummi ba'da ummi. You're my mother after my mother, yes? Anti ummi ba'da ummi, yes? Like what a child does. And Barakah nodded her head, hugged him, said, Yes, Ana Ummuka Ba'da Ummuka. Ever since then, he used to call her Ummi Ba'da Ummi. Till he died, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, used to always call her Anti Ummi Ba'da Ummi. 
my mother after my mother. This Ethiopian lady who was a slave, her lineage is not known, her parents are not known, who was in, in a warfare, they took her and sold her in the market and then she was given to the household of Rasulullah One of the women of paradise, Barakah anha, she is the one who did this and she looked after him from that point onwards. She wouldn't leave him alone. Wallahi, she refused to get married to anybody until the day came when the Prophet married when he was 25 years old and he brought her into the house saying, Ya Barakah, I got married. Now it's your turn. And she said to him, I will never leave you alone. Who's going to look after you? He said, I got Khadija. Look at beautiful. He said, no, I won't get married. I've got to look after you. And she was so attached to him. He said, no, you're going to get married. And the story goes on, subhanAllah. Barakah later on, she married a man from Yathrib. She had a child from him named Usama. And then her husband died. SubhanAllah, she became a widow and returned back to the Prophet ﷺ, living with him and Khadija. She was there in every part of his life. And then after that, she married Zayd. Ibn Thabit. We're going to talk about Zayd next week, insha'Allah. Zayd was one of the people of paradise. And one day Barakah entered. She was approximately 40, maybe close to her 40, close to 50 years old. And Zayd was in his 30s. Rasul said, Who wants to marry a woman of paradise? They all put their hand up. Then when he said it was Barakah, they all put their hands down. Zayd said, Ya Rasulullah, I'll marry her. And he became her husband afterwards. And they had a son. I'm sorry, the first one was Ayman. So it was called Ummu Ayman. Now they had the son called Usama, Usama ibn Zayd radiallahu anhuma. My brothers and sisters in Islam, that is how the Prophet's mother died. There is a hadith which is also Sahih, I think it's in Tirmidhi or Muslim, I'm not sure, but it's a Sahih hadith. When later on, Rasulullah was in his 50s. And they were coming back on a journey while Umar anhu, the other companions were with him. I'm fast forwarding now. 40 years later, 45 years later. Umar went out looking for the Prophet Where did he find him? He found him crying at a grave. No one knew that was whose grave that was. In a place called Al-Abwa. He said, Ya Rasulullah, ma hatta nabki What is making you cry, Ya Rasulullah? So that we may cry with you. Why did they say that? There is nothing the Prophet ﷺ ever cried about except that it was a cry that pleased Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And never did he laugh except it was a laughter that pleased Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Never did he get angry except it was an anger that pleased Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And never saddened except the saddened that pleased Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of his emotions were in line with the pleasure of Allah. As Aisha radiallahu anha truly said, كَانَ قُرْآنًا يَمْشِي بَيْنَ النَّاسِ He was a walking Qur'an. That was his khuluq. Kana khuluquhu al-Qur'an. His character, his personality was all the Qur'an. He said, Ya Rasulullah, may you kick, what's making you cry so we may cry with you? He was crying heavily. Heavily. He was very emotional, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Very sensitive in the right place. But he was also a man. When he had to step on his emotions and step on his heart, he did so. In that time he said, Atadruna qabra man hadad, do you know whose grave this is? He said, No, Ya Rasulullah wa Rasuluhu a'la. Allah and His Messenger know best. And he said, Hadihi amina bintu Wahab, ummu nabiyyikum. This is Amina, the daughter of Wahab, the mother of your Prophet. And in Sahih Hadith, which is in Sahih Muslim, Hadith number 976, Rasulullah said, I asked my Lord to give me permission 
to pray for forgiveness for my mother, but he gave me no permission. So I asked him permission to visit her grave, and Allah gave me permission. Imam al-Nawawi, rahmatullah comments, this shows us that while the disbelievers are alive, we can make dua for them. But when they have died, this is the matter belonging to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even Ibrahim salam himself about his father, Azar, he said, Sofa astaghfiru laka rabbi, I'll ask Allah to forgive you. But when he died, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbid him from doing so. It will not reach them. And this is evidence, wallahu alam, in our belief that the parents of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam were not believers. Why? They had the opportunity to follow the deen al-Hanif. Deen al-Hanif is the, remember we said, the religion of Ibrahim And there were only a handful of people who were still on the religion of Hanifiyyah. A handful. There were actually four main people that we know of. Their names were Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayr, Uthman ibn al-Harith, he became a, a true Christian. And Waraq ibn Nawfal, the first cousin of Khadija radiallahu anhu, he also became a Christian. And Qis ibn Sa'd, he was also a muwahid, one who worshipped Allah alone. The story of Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl, I think it's worthy talking about it. Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa when he was a child, he talks about him later on. He says, I saw Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl, one of the people before prophethood who believed in one God, while everyone else worshipped idols. He said, I saw Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl, he used to sit with his back to the Kaaba. And he used to watch the people, the mushrikeen, making tawaf around the Kaaba. And when they made the talbiyah, remember the talbiyah? لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ Say it with me. لَبَّيْكَ لَا, لا شَرِيكَ لَكَ لَبَّيْكَ إِنَّ الْحَمْدَ وَالنِّعْمَةَ لَكَ وَالْمُلْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ Which ends with, Oh Allah, there is no partner to you. And then he would say to the people, he would say to them, Stop, stop, do not add anything more. But they wouldn't listen to him. They would add, remember the story last time when I told you? Remember? Qais ibn Kilab, the original grandfather of Prophet of the whole of, of Quraysh, of all of them. He was the one, not Qais Afwan, Amr ibn Tufayl, he is the one who brought in the idols, remember? And he made their talbiyah to be, La sharika lak, and then he added, Illa sharikan tamlikuhu anta wa ma malak, except for a partner who belongs to you, and everything he has belongs to you. Yani, all his idols, you, O oh Allah, they're your partners, but they belong to you. You own them. You're the king of them. Like the way the Greeks used to believe in Zeus and the rest of the gods. Like that. So this man used to say, stop, stop. He was on the Hanif. And he used to tell them, stop slaughtering sheep to, and, and your cows and everything. Your, your, uh, stop slaughtering your, your camels and sheep to the idols. Slaughter them in the name of Allah. But they never listened to him. So he left them and went and lived alone until he died. He actually went to, to know the true religion. So he went to uh, a Jewish man, a scholar, and he told him this is what Judaism is all about. Zayd then said to him, is this it? How do I become a Jew? 
He said to him, well, first you have to earn God's anger upon you. Remember that the Jews believed that the children of Israel were lost in the land because of God's anger. And that's why they believe, the Orthodox Jews, that you have to be born of the blood of a Jew. Because the blood goes back to the ancestors whom God's anger was bestowed upon them. So the fact that you were born from their blood, you've already got God's, God's anger, then you become a Jew and that's gone. So the anger has to come, come upon you somehow. He said, Subhanallah, I'm running away from Allah's anger to go back into it. I don't like this. He said, tell me, where do I go to know about the true religion? He said, all I know is the religion of Ibrahim. He goes, where do I get this knowledge? He goes, there's a man who's very knowledgeable. He lives in such and such. He went to him, ended up being a Christian scholar. He asked him about his Christianity and the man said to Zayd, uh, this is what Christianity is. And then he said, how do I become a Christian? He said, well, first you have to go into losthood of sin. You're, you know that the, especially the Catholics believe that every person is born with the sin, the everlasting sin of Adam and Eve because they ate from the tree, the forbidden tree. So you're born with it and especially the Catholics believe this, that you have to get baptized to get rid of that sin and you become Catholic. So he believed that he has to first of all do this and get, you know, get lost in some, in some way. So you have to believe that you have that sin from Adam. And he said, I, I ran away from sin. I've, no, I've done nothing to come to believe that I'm sinful for nothing. He said, I, I don't like this. So on his way back to Mecca, Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl, he said, and it's just to prove to you, to show you that people did have the option of becoming true believers in one God. Even though they didn't know how to pray, they didn't know how to fast, they didn't know any of these things. But at least what they knew of truth, their own mind, their own common sense told them. They didn't follow blindly. Their own conscience told them. Their own fitrah told them. You're able to make that up. I mean, even Christians today, they say, you know, this whole concept of the Trinity never really sat with me properly. Those who convert to Islam, they tell you that. The Jews even, they tell you, look, you know, we know, but it's the pride that takes over. You know, we're Jewish blood and so on. And anyone else, Hindu, Buddhist, all those people, you know, they say to you, this is the religion of my forefathers. This is the religion I was born in. Sometimes they say, why are you a Jew? I was born a Jew. Why are you a Catholic? I was born in... A Catholic. Why are you a Hindu? I was born, raised a Hindu. That's all it really is. But does it, does it make sense to you? Oh, that doesn't matter so long as I have faith. You know. So, uh, Zayd made up his mind. He said, Oh Allah, on his way to the Kaaba, Oh Allah, I make you witness that I am a monotheist on the religion of Ibrahim. And that's it. He used to bow and prostrate the way he knew. And this is actually good news to us. It tells us, brothers and sisters, that Let's say you never heard about the deen. Let's say you don't know much about the deen. You never had the option, you never had the chance. Whatever, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala judges you upon the limited knowledge which you have. Right? Limited knowledge which you have. The limited understanding that you have. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment will judge you according to that. Right? Even if you do wrong things and you try your best sincerely, Allah judges you according to the limited knowledge and intention which you have. Uh, Rasulullah says about this man Zayd ibn Nawfal on the day of judgment he died uh, before the prophethood by five years by the way and the Prophet said he will be gathered on the day of judgment as an ummah as a nation by himself and I saw him he has got a cloak made out of silk dragging off his shoulders in Jannah yet yet he just worshipped one God and knew nothing else. That's it. He prayed the way he thought was good. He prayed the way... But it's not like today. We have Alhamdulillah the Qur'an, we have our Sunnah, we have everything that explains Salat. And you still see people saying, I prayed to God the way I feel like I should pray. You know, write a letter to God. 
or I get up at night and I just do this, or I do that. We have salat, we have our knowledge and teachings. But if you don't know any other way, then you pray the way you know until you learn. My brothers and sisters in Islam, Maghrib is approaching very soon. What I'm going to say is this. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Next week, insha'Allah ta'ala, I want to talk to you about the remainder of the childhood of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, followed by age, which age he went through and what happened there, his marriage to Khadija radiallahu anha. And may I make one comment because I feel like shocking you and surprising you about something. How old was Khadija radiallahu anha when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam married her? 40. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was? 25. To be honest to you, my brothers and sisters in Islam, the more authentic sources say that Khadija radiallahu anha was younger than 40. She was actually more like 28. <laughs> sure, the brother Bilal is coming here to tell us nonsense. All our lives we heard 40. This is why we're telling the non-Muslims, look at us, the Prophet married a much older woman, the women's value. Of course, they're still valuable. Rasulullah was old, Khadija was older than the Prophet But as I'm going to tell you the facts, man. The only person, there's only one scholar who said that she was 40 and he is not the most reliable. There are Al-Bayhaqi and Imam Ibn Kathir and Ibn Ishaq and many others like them who are much higher in caliber and knowledge than, 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 than the narrator of this hadith that say she was more like 28 years old. The Prophet was 25. That's true. And they lived together for... 15 years. And it doesn't make sense that a 40-year-old had six children. She had six children. And there's about a year and a half to two years apart between each one. Even with common sense tells you that, because menopause is close to about 50-something, right? 55. And it makes more sense, the scholars said, that she was of a lesser age, about 28. Uh, and that the Prophet ﷺ married her when she was about that age. But I'll tell you what, next week, inshallah, we'll talk more about his marriage to Khadija radiallahu anha. I want to talk about what happened when he was at the age of 35, the building of the Kaaba. There is something very important called uh, the uh, Harb al-Fijar and Hilf al-Fudul. Very, very important lessons to learn from there. I'd rather leave them till next week so we can have our time. And I wish that you would all come back, inshallah ta'ala. They are extremely valuable lessons that I doubt. I doubt that you will come across many Sira books that would give you the lessons out of these particular stories. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us understanding and wisdom. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made this a blessed and beneficial lesson to you all. Allahumma taqabbal wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.